Welcome to Bible study today. I'm sure you'll find this study really interesting. It's on the topic of the least of these, and this whole section of studies that we're doing is also called least of these. But I'd like to introduce to you the panel today. First of all, we have Harvey. Would you like to greet our listeners today, Harvey? Yeah, I'm happy to. I think it's a great privilege that we have in this country to have the freedom to study the Word of God. And then we have Ken. Hello, listeners. Wonderful to be with you all today and hope you're having a wonderful day. And Brenton. It's lovely to be back on air again this week with having had a week off last week. We're looking forward to sharing the good things about the least of these, my brethren. And my name is Len. Our facilitator today is Helen. Thank you, Len. It is indeed a delight to be here with everybody. Okay, well, let's get underway straight away. We've got uh, quite a lot to go through today. So let's start. We're building on the foundation of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus echoed and he broadened the focus on caring for the poor and oppressed. There are some great examples that Jesus gave us regarding and emphasizing that his followers will live as people of compassion and mercy while they wait for his return. And Jesus' teachings set out a different way of living, which we will actually explore today. Hopefully, we'll have time to look briefly at Jesus' longer sermon or collection of teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, Overcoming Evil with Good, the Parable of the Good Samaritan and of the Rich Man and Lazarus, and if we have the time, let's finish off with the least of these. However, before we go much further, we'll stop for a moment for prayer. Len, would you lead us, please? Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to look into and share your word yet again. And Lord, although we can read and can think, your word means nothing to us unless the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and convicts us of what we need to be convicted about. I also want to pray for our listeners that they not only enjoy this program, but that it helps them in their Christian walk today. We invite your blessings and we pray these things in and through the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. Right, okay, well we're going to start off with introducing the Sermon on the Mount, one of the longest sermons that Jesus took, a teaching that he took right the way through. And I want to ask the panel a question, and that is, how does Jesus begin each of the first nine Beatitudes, and what does the word mean? Blessed is the word that starts them all. And uh, when you consider that blessed can also be interpreted happy, Okay, anybody want to make another comment? Well, I'd, I would like to add this. I th include in the meaning of blessed, fortunate. Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly interesting because if you look at uh, one or two of the Beatitudes, it says blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' <laughs> sake. Mm -hmm. Happy. We're going to talk about <laughs> that According too. to uh, Christ, yes. happy, fortunate, yes. Mm -hmm. We're I going think, to get into it. <laughs> I think one of the other interesting things about it, as we've said, he starts off each of these verses with blessed. So he's really forcibly saying and making a note that this is important, I believe. Yes, thank you. All, all um, good answers. Uh, I believe it is more than happiness, as uh, the panel are bringing out. It means experience of hope and joy and independent of outward circumstances, where happiness, we can lose our happiness in a second. 
depending on what sort of comes and hits us. But to find this hope and joy, the deepest form of happiness, we need to follow Jesus no matter what the cost is. So if our listeners should have time, please look up um, the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew uh, chapter 5. Actually, it goes over a couple of chapters, but particularly chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. But I'd like to ask the panel another question, and that what else do the Beatitudes have in common apart from this word blessed? What else do they have in common? Well, I think, Heather, one of the things, I think these are attitudes of Christian people and of Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. I think these are uh, things that he had, uh, and uh, that's the way his spirit was. Okay. Anybody else want to add to that? Well, one thing is noticeably missing, and that's this. It's talking about people who are humble, who are kind, who put up with all kinds of difficult situations in their lives. But it doesn't say blessed are the proud, blessed are those who push themselves forward. It's talking about humility and kindness and goodness and, if you like, putting self behind and putting others first. Thank you, Len. It's kind of upside down to the worldly values, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and I guess that's why in Scripture there's a, a text somewhere that says the disciples turned the town upside down because it's totally different. Mm, okay. on, yeah. Just a quick one. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Yes. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. It almost seems as though Christ is saying, when you suffer these things, don't think that you are um, opening up something that's brand new. I think the term we use today is set a precedent. Mm -hmm. There have been many precedents down through the years, many, many godly men and women who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he's really saying here, when this actually happens to you, and remember the qualifying word is for righteousness sake yes when you hear that or when you see that be glad because you know that you're in the same line as the prophets and those who were persecuted of old didn't yes. paul make a statement for me to live <coughs> what, what did he say to die is to gain. Die for is me gain. to live as christ, christ and to, to die, die is gain mm. that's true we will actually touch that too a little later but thank you for bringing that up i did notice when i went through this beatitudes and i love the beatitudes that Every one of them was giving God's reward, if you notice, you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall... And there's a positive consequence. Yes, absolutely. But there's something else I notice, that Jesus keeps referring to the kingdom of heaven. And I just want to ask a question. In talking about the kingdom of heaven, is that just referring to the future or now? I think it's actually just... It's not talking about the future necessarily. It can be just equally now. It's what we would consider is the way Christ wants us to live now. Excellent. And yeah. so it's... But the people of God, we could call them the kingdom of heaven. They're those that are... I suppose we could call it training for heaven to a large extent. Mm -hmm. Mm. Thank you for Good that. Point. In every culture, there will be many subcultures. The kingdom of heaven is a subculture within the culture in which we live. And Jesus came to set up his kingdom based on these kinds of values, based on the fact that he is the king. And so the kingdom of heaven is not necessarily referring to the future. That's often referred to as the kingdom of glory. 
the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom in which God's people are right now, have been in the past, and yet to come. Thank you. Brenton, you want Good to say point. something? No, it's touched on further down. Um, Len used the term uh, the kingdom of heaven as a subculture. I believe Christ's intention was that it actually become the culture of yes. society. It may have started out as a subculture. We'll come to it earlier uh, later on when we get in our study a bit more. But there's a little statement here that I'd like to share with you. Jesus also talked about the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' description, the kingdom of heaven is a reality that we can be part of even now. It is a way of life that functions with a a different set of priorities and values and morals that are found in earthly kingdoms. Jesus' teaching set out the blueprint for this kingdom and it includes a strong focus on how we serve God and in serving him how we relate to others. We also discover that serving others, caring for their needs and uplifting them is one way in which we can directly offer service to God. Now just to qualify and comment on that, when you help other people it actually often has a greater effect upon you than upon the people that you are helping. It actually helps you to develop character, helps you to become more empathetic and more compassionate as you help others. That's so true, isn't it? I'd just like to read also from an author, Nathan Brown, and he made this comment, which I thought was worth sharing. He says, Jesus' kingdom of heaven was markedly different from those proclaimed and sought by so many would-be revolutionaries and messiahs of his time and throughout history. For one, it was resolutely non-violent, championing humility, kindness and peacemaking, which is what Lynn and Harvey and and the panel said. But this was not a recipe for passivity. Resistance would come in the form of integrity, determination, creativity and sacrifice. And in the sermon Jesus gave on the Mount, he began by describing the traits he was looking for in his followers. He said that God blesses those who live out their traits. Each beatitude is almost direct contradiction of society's typical way of life, as we said, upside down. In the last one, um, Brenton brought up, Jesus even points out a serious effort to develop these traits is bound to create opposition. And the best example of each trait is found in Jesus himself. If our goal is to become like him, we need to know what these traits are and apply them to our life today. So I guess panel please in a nutshell tell us what these traits are so that we know what we are supposed to be like well i think it's as we've covered these uh, bible studies over the the last few weeks these traits are really very similar to what jesus had when he was on the earth to help others where we can to have peace with others uh, not to uh, start conflict with people and just to share what we have and go out of our way to help other people whenever we can. I'd like to say this, that these traits of character that Jesus is talking about, by and large, are those things which God has told us how we should live in the Ten Commandments, that we are to consider the rights and um, of others, that we are to respect them, even though... They, not, they may not respect our rights. Helen, I think there's another point here that's actually very important, and that point is that um, <clears throat> really what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes in a nutshell is this. All the methods by which 
one rules a nation, all the methods by which one operates have been, as you said earlier on, turned on their head. The principle here is that all previous efforts, such as the Romans dominating the Jews and all that sort of thing, all of that has been proven to be ineffective. The only thing that will ultimately prove to be effective is adopting these principles that are found in the Beatitudes, particularly when it comes to areas like don't uh, uh, fight back, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We still have plenty of that in society even today. And so that's, uh, I, I think if these principles are adopted, we find that uh, our society would be a very different place from the place it is now. That literally would be heaven on earth, wouldn't it? I think also, uh, adding to that, Brenton, we could really again sum this up in a couple of words, and that would be love your neighbour as yourself. Yes. yes. When we look at the Beatitudes, we see, um, I think it finishes with attitude, you know. It's very much an attitude. And if you read in Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, and I'll read that, it's blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So we don't have to feel that we are doing something that is original. It's something that has happened many times and we look back to the Dark Ages, we look back to the Old Testament times and we see the the persecution that God's people have endured. And I think it's really important that we understand the concept. He that endures unto the end shall be saved. Thank mm. you, Harvey. Can persecution be termed as something good? I, I think that's a real, real interesting question, Helen. And initially, most people would probably think, no, that's not a good idea. But uh, in my travels around the world, I've come across many peoples who are having it very, very difficult. And believe it or not, many of these people, I have found, have been a lot happier than what we are in the Western world. And yet they're under uh, quite difficult circumstances. And I think sometimes people in the Western world, obviously not everyone, but many people in the Western, Western world, we have it really very easy most of the time. And... We don't understand how the other half live. Mm. Yes, Lynn. Well, I want to give you an actual example. During the Second World War, when the Germans swept through Denmark, they took all the animals, cattle, sheep, pigs, goats, whatever, chooks, turkeys, <laughs> for yes. their own use. So the people were reduced to eating a, a plant-based diet. There were fewer sicknesses during that time than before or afterwards simply because of the change of diet of the people. So there's an actual example of where persecution, in this case um, an invasion, was good for people. Yeah, good on you. I think, Brenton, you want yeah. to say something. Persecution can have one of two effects. It can either make you stronger or it can break you. The difference between the two and how you relate to it, I think, is this. As Christians, we have the examples in Scripture of persecution and how people related to them. Ultimately, we have the description of how Jesus related to being persecuted. 
particularly in the crucifixion and the trial scene. And in that scenario, I believe we gain strength to stand up to persecution for ourselves. We can treat it in the same way that he treated it. Thank you. I, I believe what you're saying is spot on there, Brenton. I, I actually just jotted down a couple of points myself. I thought, well, yes, per persecution can be good for what we've been just talking about. It does take our eyes off earthly rewards. It strips away superficial belief. It strengthens the faith of those who endure, and our attitude through it serves as an example to others to follow. And God's greatest prophets were persecuted. We could think of Daniel, Elijah, Jeremiah. But even when someone is threatening to seek us harm, we still have the choice. It's not how people act towards us. It's how we react to them that's important. We can take that the choice of going to God in prayer for those people and bringing good to that person whenever we're able. And, and I think that's a, it, it changes our attitude. But what are we going to be like? I'd really like to go back to Matthew very quickly, Matthew five thirteen to 16. Let's have a look at that. Well, he, uh, here we are listening to uh, the verses out of uh, Matthew five thirteen to yeah. Um, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, this is, a, again, a very interesting statement, and it's basically saying, uh, and we'll use the word salt because it's one of the main things in it. Salt, back in the early days of the... Uh, early days of time we didn't have refrigerators and nice blocks and cold storage and all this sort of thing so salt was used uh, to do yes as a preservative uh, not only that but also of course obviously to taste food and actually back in those days it was a very valuable substance and it was treated as such it was very important now if if that salt had a lost its value had lost its uh, ability to do those jobs. It wouldn't be worth very much and would have been thrown out. And I think it's a bit like us today as Christians. We are meant to be the salt of the earth. We're meant to be as Jesus is and do the best we can for other people. Otherwise, what good are we? That is so true, King. You know, if a seasoning has no flavor, it has no value. Is that right? And we should affect others positively just as seasoning brings out the best flavour in food. And if we live for Christ, we will also glow like lights, showing others what Christ is like. We need to be a beacon of truth and don't shut our light off from the rest of the world. When, you, when used appropriately, <coughs> salt and light are to make a difference in the context in which they're added. Salt brings out flavours <coughs> as well as preserves the foods it's added to. It's symbolic of the good that we should be for those around us. Similarly, light pushes back darkness, revealing obstacles and hazards, making a house or city safer and providing a point to navigate by, even when some distance away. Just think of ships. Like a light on a dark night, Jesus said, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds 
and glorify your Father in heaven. Helen, I'd also like to add to that actually something you said I think was really important, and that is that we should be a beacon of truth. Yes. I think that's really important today. Yes. When we realise about persecution, it's an influence. We are an influence, and in fact, the persecutors are trying to push us down to the point where we don't exist anymore. But there was a saying, because it seemed like the, the stronger the persecution, the stronger the church became. And it used to be, well, there's been stated, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Yes, that's true. That's true. So I actually remember um, reading the story of Richard Wormlin and um, how he was in prison and he would keep on praying and they, they tortured him for praying. And one day the guard came and he said, surely you've got nothing more to pray about. And he looked up and he said, I'm praying for you. And I think that spoke volumes. We've got a quote here I'd like to read. Both these salt and light symbols point us to the responsibility of disciples to influence and improve the lives of those around them. We are salt and light when we live lives that mourn appropriately, have purity of heart, practice humility, show mercy, make peace and endure oppression. So Jesus begins this sermon with the call to embody these sometimes undervalued values of his kingdom. Right. Someone once said it's harder to be salt than light. Light you can turn on and off. Um, Salt, once the flavour is gone, it's gone. But Mm. let me read this statement. Light generally shines from afar, makes darkness disappear and helps us to find what is lost. Being salt, however, takes extra commitment because it must mingle with ingredients different from itself in order to do its healing properties to have an impact. But you can see you need both. It's no good mingling with people if you can't produce the light that Jesus is talking about. Ken, you touched on a very good point. We are to be the light of the world in the sense that morally and religiously and religious teachings that come from the word of God, we are to share those with those around about us. That's the light, but we have to mingle in order to be the salt. Thank you, Brent. I'm glad you finished on that one because I was going to say the same at the end there too. But, you know, just think about the Beatitudes for a moment. They are not multiple choice questions, by the way. We can't pick out one and leave the rest. They must be taken as a whole. And they describe what we should be like as Christ's followers. But we are going to move on to the next section, Overcoming Evil with Good. And uh, Matthew 5, 38 to 48 covers this and tells us what we are to be like Well, these are the words of Jesus again, and he says, You've heard that that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You know, we have in our vernacular a saying, um, turn the other cheek. Now, I have to tell you that my father was a very practical man and he used to say this, when someone smites you on one cheek, turn the other 
And when he's done that, then you ha- let him have it. <laughs> <laughs> but in actual fact... I don't think that's what the Scriptures say. No, it's, it's not what the Scriptures say. However, however, in doing this, there is um, an aggressor and there's a victim. The aggressor hits you on one cheek or takes your cloak or makes you do this or that. You do it. But in doing it... Not only do you do what that person wants or take what he hands out, but you go an extra mile. You go the Same. extra mile. Um, you give more than what he requires. And in doing that, you become not just the victim, you become the master. Mm. But in humility, you become the master. Mm. Thank you, Len. You covered that very, very well. There's also, lots of it things. helps the um, the aggressor um, in the scenario that Len has just presented to us. In following that particular approach, the aggressor, if they are really tuned in, will start to be ashamed of themselves mm. for what they've actually done. Yeah. That it actually, it, it us actually into our next it, text. what it actually does is mm. it actually empowers you. Yeah, well, it frees you and gives you the opportunity to move on while the other person is still uh, stuck in trying to get back at you. Thank you, Brenton. That actually covers our next text in Romans 12. That's okay, 20 to 21. And um, let's hear what that has to say. Okay. This is exactly what you were just saying, Brenton. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I'd just like to add to that, just going back in time again, because history tells us lots and lots of things, but back in the uh, the Roman days and all that sort of thing, there was thousands and thousands of Christians murdered and killed at the stake and burned at the stake and all these sort of things. And it was because they wouldn't give up their faith. Now, this was real persecution at a really bad time. But if we, re- we read history, the people watching this, although at the time they thought, oh, this is great sport, but so many of them turned to be Christians themselves because they could not understand what is it about these people that are willing to give up their life for something they cannot see. That's true. Good point. That's true. I'd just like to make a comment about this coals of fire. That um, expression comes from a custom that used to occur. And it sounds like it's a terrible thing to heap coals all over somebody's head. But if somebody's fire went out in the night and your fire was still going in the morning, your neighbour, for example, might come to you and ask for some coals in order to start their own fire at home. Mm-hmm. And in the days when people used to carry stuff on their heads there would be a, a, a dish, and I hope I'm not crossing over somebody else's um, territory here, but the coals of fire wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. Mm. Thanks, Lee. Good point, Lee. Actually, there's a story in, of an Egyptian thief who stole a book from, the gra- from a gravesite. After being caught, the thief returned the book to the gravesite, this time while carrying a basin of fiery coals on his head. These coals were an outward symbol of repentance and regret for his unrighteous act. It signified recognition of wrongs and the willingness to endure the shame and guilt in order to change. This old story gives a fresh understanding of the intent 
of both the proverb and Paul's quote in Romans 12. A Christian is compassionate toward his or her enemy in hopes of redeeming a friend. Thank you. But I also want to thank Len because I think there were two sides there sure. and um, you brought it out well. Thank you for that. I actually read a statement and I don't know if you can get it, but I read the statement and I thought it was worth sharing. It said, So artists melt the sullen ore of lead by heaping coals of fire upon its head. In the kind warmth the metal learns to glow and pure from dross the silver runs below. And I, I just thought about that and I thought that's very applicable. But let's move on and um, let's just have a look at um, another scene from this whole overcoming evil with good. I think, Brenton, you've got a quote. The scenarios Jesus described were common experiences for many of his listeners. They were often violently assaulted by their superiors or masters. They were often indebted and lost their property to the landlords and lenders. Isn't it interesting that we have some protections in place in our society today, Helen, that that doesn't occur. Mm. They were often pressed into labour by the occupying Roman soldiers. Jesus taught the people to respond with integrity, to treat the oppressors better than they deserved. Now, let's be perfectly honest, that is hard to do. Without the Spirit of God in your heart, you can't do it. And by so doing, to resist the loss of their humanity. I find that an interesting statement. While these oppressors tried to exert their power, the people always had the freedom to choose how they would respond. And by resisting non-violently and responding generously, they exposed the evil of the oppression and injustice that was being done. Very insightful comment, that Mm, one. Thank you for sharing. I think that was worth sharing, absolutely. We're going to hasten on a little, and uh, I am sorry that we can only touch these areas briefly, but uh, I would like to encourage our listeners to read these texts and study them as well, and I'm sure that you'll be enlightened even more so. But we want to move on to a parable about the Good Samaritan, one of my favourite ones in Scripture. And it was a question that was put to Jesus by a lawyer one day, asked, what should I do to inherit eternal life? One which we would do all would do well to ask and then follow his advice. So let's look at his advice in Luke ten twenty-five to 27. Yes, before Ken actually reads it, can I just make a brief comment on that? Mm-hmm. Everybody, in, including our listeners, knows this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. In actual fact, it is not a parable. It is an actual event that actually took place. When Christ was telling this um, story to the group, both the Levite and the priest that uh, Ken is about to read about were in the congregation listening. You are quite so correct. It's, so I'm, it's actually I'm, a story. It's I like was it was taken it out of the advertiser. You're quite right. It was like when Jesus talked about the farmer sowing seed. There was a farmer over there. Thank you for that, Brenton. Okay. Uh, starting in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. Yeah, he really summarised it all very well, didn't he? In a very short space of time, a very simple answer. Let me just add for the listener's sake that that was from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 27. Thank you. Harvey, you've got a comment? I think it's interesting that the 
question by the lawyer was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Yes. We have to understand that God has no grandchildren. So it's not being passed down from father to son. It's coming from our Heavenly Father, no question about that. And he's giving us the right to eternal life. But it's not an inherited one that's come like from our our earthly father. It's something that is past because an inheritance usually applies when your father dies or your parent dies. Mm. Now, Jesus died on the cross, no doubt. But God the Father is a living God. And Jesus is a living God, of course, too. Our inheritance is in Jesus. Thank you. I'd like to add something there, too. You said that he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think that's important because we cannot work. It's not a works salvation. You know, when he asked that question, it's, well, if you like, he he was correct in some ways because he needed to know that he needed to love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and the neighbour as themselves. But to work and do something else, he couldn't buy it, he couldn't earn it. Yes, Lynn? This question was asked of Jesus twice, once by this lawyer, another time by the rich young ruler. And the first thing that Jesus said, what are the commandments? How do you read them? Yeah, how do you read them? And the lawyer had actually interpreted the commandments correctly. Now, there are a lot of people around who say, well, the Ten Commandments don't apply um, anymore. Well, that's a load of rubbish, and uh, we're not going to deal with that today. However, what is enjoined in the Ten Commandments is to respect and love God and to respect and love people. And what we're dealing with mainly today is how we relate to other people. Do we try to, if you like, ride over them? Do we like to assert ourselves above them? Or do we treat other people better than ourselves? And this is the thrust of this lesson, and this is the thrust of what Jesus was teaching. Thank you, Len. Ellen, just a quick one on uh, what uh, Ken has read so far. Christ was actually very wise in the way he answered this. He put the question back on him. He said, how do you read it? Mm -hmm. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Jesus' answer to him was, this do and you shall live. What this did is it put him on vantage ground with the rabbis and the scribes who claimed that he was breaking down the law of God and diluting the commandments and things that had been given by God through Moses. So he was actually getting them on side, but in the next breath he's saying, well, you go and do likewise. Mm -hmm. Then we'll get to that in a minute. But basically he was saying it's not enough to know it intellectually, it's not enough to be able to repeat parrot-like, love the Lord your yes. God with all your heart and your neighbour as yourself. You actually have to do it. And who is your neighbour? Well, we're about to find out when Len reads. Now, Len, I am going to ask you to summarise. <coughs> or summarise. Luke 10, 30 to 37. I'm sorry okay, we well, I won't, I won't read it yeah. because okay. I think a lot of people are familiar with the term Good Samaritan. This uh, chap on his way to Jericho, uh, he was attacked by bandits. They stripped anything of value from him, including his clothes, and beat him up as well. There he was on the side of the road. Along came, uh, along came a Levite, who was basically a, a priest. He saw the man there. He observed everything. 
uh, coughed twice and went on and did nothing else. Um, along came somebody else, also uh, a religious person. Saw the man there, coughed three times. Well, I'm making this up. Coughed three times and walked on and did nothing about it. Along came a non-religious person, I assume, or non-approved religious person in the Jewish culture, a Samaritan. <coughs> he saw the man there, he took pity on him, he helped him, he even provided for his future needs, mm. and he was a blessing to him. Now, the thrust of this story is it's not how religious you appear to be, it's what you do that counts. And the Samaritan is an example for others. When we see somebody in need, we are neglecting our duty if we just um, fob them off. Thank you, Len. It reminds me of a, strangely enough, of a, a Peanuts cartoon that I saw once. And it had um, Linus was there and, and he was shivering and the Lucy went past and, and said, are, are you all right? And he said, I'm cold. And she said, well, keep warm, and she kept going. Didn't yeah. give him a blanket or anything, which I thought was... Can I just make a correction? I'm, I'm sorry, I had a bit of a mental block there, first of all. A priest was the first one to come, mm -hmm. and the Levite was the second one. So, listeners, if you say, well, you don't know your Bible, well, I do know my Bible, but I just had a mental block. I think we all suffer from that sometimes. We yes, Ken. <laughs> yeah, I'd just like to add something to it real quickly. Uh, many of our listeners may not know this, but Samaritans at the time were considered the lowest of the low, and most people didn't go anywhere near them or have anything to do with them. Yet this person uh, gave his time and money and help to this person who needed it. Okay, let me just mention a couple of... Did you... You're trying to say something? Something very quickly. Brenton, okay. The difference between the priest the Levite and the Samaritan, quite apart from the fact that one took action and the others didn't, is this. The Samaritan didn't decide in coming to attend to the man whether he was a Jew or a fellow Samaritan. He simply saw somebody in need and acted. Uh -huh. The other two would have had all sorts of questions in their mind. Is he a Samaritan? Is he now an unclean person? If I touch him, I'm going to be unclean for the next seven days, etc., etc., None of those things uh, washed with the Samaritan. The Maritan, Samaritan simply saw somebody in need, he helped. What is okay. our uh, mission today in 2019? If we see a need, we're not to ask any of those questions. We're just to help. In other words, love just because, because that's what Jesus did. I'd like to add to that Samaritan story just by saying the legal expert viewed the wounded man as a topic for discussion, the bandits as an object to exploit, the priest as a problem to avoid, the temple assistant as an object of curiosity, but it was only the Samaritan that treated him as a person to love. And from the illustration, we learn three principles about loving our neighbour. Lack of love is often easy to justify, even though it is never right. Our neighbour is anyone of any race, creed or social background who is in need. And love means acting to meet that person's need. So when it, wherever you live, there are needy people close by and there is no good reason for refusing them help. I've got a, a quote here. As was common in Jesus' teaching... His harshest criticism was aimed at those who claimed to be religious 
but showed little concern for the suffering of others. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Christ illustrates the nature of true religion. He shows that it consists not in systems, creeds or rites, but in the performance of loving deeds, in bringing the greatest good to others, in genuine goodness. And I think we have to, when we read that, when I read that, I see that for people to do things not because they're getting a benefit for themselves, but they're doing it because they have a care and a love for their fellow man. Thank you. And that should be the motivation only, really. Yeah, thank you, Harvey. I'd just like to add something again, Helen, on that, and that is uh, all of us today never know the day that we may need someone's help, and I'm sure if we were in help it would be great for someone to come and give us a hand no matter what it's for. Thank you. Mm. Okay, I'm going to present a scenario. You're all dressed up, you're going to church, and um, somebody has had an accident, and there's mess everywhere, and there's blood everywhere, and you're the first person on the scene. What do you do? Well, you stop and immediately and, and go over and see if you can help, send for other help. But you're going well. to get your clothes all dirty? Who cares? Well, Leon, the the I, Lord got I, down I, in the dirt. Leon, so. I would like to say the very first thing you do is pray. <laughs> it only takes a few well, seconds. Well, I think we'll pray as we're going over to yes, the person. Yes, that's, that's what I mean, yes, but that would be the very time. first thing. Yeah. Yes. So then can I make a very uh, valid comment? of a true story that happened to me and I know we're running out of time so I'll say it quickly someone uh, came along one day when I was eating lunch after church in my suit and said that they had heart trouble they had pains in the chest I said hop in my car I'll take you to the hospital uh, I popped them in my car 500 metres down the road she threw up all over the seat all over the floor and some of it got on my suit as well now, I still dropped her off at the hospital, but by that stage I had a car with a front seat full of sick and I took it straight to the car cleaner and got it cleaned. <laughs> I considered that her, her needs were more important than that, but it, maybe that just helps with the illustration. I, I think that's very important what you've just said. You considered her needs more important than yours. Mm. Mm. And this is really the case of what we're talking about here, is putting someone ahead of yourself. Yeah. You can only do that when it becomes second nature because of the love of Christ flowing through you. Yeah. Yes. It okay. wasn't a situation of going to church, but I had a, many years ago I was doing a St John Ambulance um, program. I wasn't doing it. I was actually one of the students. And we were waiting for the lecturer. And he was a Christian. But we were waiting for him. And he was always a person that was on time. In fact, he was always early. But we waited probably, I can't remember, perhaps 20 minutes after it was supposed to start. And when he got there, he had blood all over his um, coat. He was a nurse. He'd been helping but, someone. But he'd actually attended an accident and helped somebody out. Yeah. And he's, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't go home. He was, And so he just came as he was. And I thought he considered the needs of the person mm. in the accident to be more than anything else yes. that was going to happen yeah. in the in the few minutes later. Thank Helen, you, can you. I summarise this yes. story quickly yes. so as to save time? Yes. There is a story told of a group of psychologists who asked theology students to prepare a talk on the Good Samaritan. So they did, and they presented their talk. Then they asked them to go to a building nearby to present the same talk. 
on the way the psychologists had set up some people who were actors and um, they were to cough and groan and uh, make out they were in deep distress virtually none of the psychology students and the theology students stopped to ask whether the, these people needed help in fact some of the theology students actually stepped over them to get to their next preaching appointment and psychologists came to the conclusion that in theory it works but in practice it's not so good in yeah. actually ministering to the needs of others how how appropriate it's actually no different with a lot of us <coughs> today isn't it but let's move on um we want to look quickly at the rich man and lazarus and i know that len would love to spend a lot of time on this but sorry len we don't have a lot but can you summarize please luke 16 19 to 31 and luke 12 13 to 21 well i'm just going to go from luke 16 jesus is telling a story some people regarded as not a parable but it was a parable to illustrate a point some people regard this as um, reason to have a certain doctrine it's neither it's not that either it's a story to illustrate the po a point he tells a story of a rich man who had everything he desired there was a poor man who used to hang around outside his property and expecting a few little favours. Well, there's a jump in the story. They both died. The story says the poor man was taken to Abraham's bosom, which many people interpret as heaven, whereas the rich man was taken to hell. And there he was enduring the flames of hell and groaning and thirsty and everything, and he cried out to Father Abraham, and he said, couldn't you send the poor man whose name is Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and put it on the tip of my tongue that I might have a little bit of relief from this heat? And then Abraham said, look, there's a huge divide between you and him. This is not possible. Well, says the rich man, in view of the fact that I'm in this torment, can you send a message to my brothers, I have five brothers, that they don't fall into the same situation as what I'm in. And then Jesus in this story said, or at least through, he's saying that Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. In other words, they don't need a special messenger. They have already a message from God. Abraham and uh, Moses and the prophets. And then Jesus said, as a conclusion to this story, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this was a direct reproof to the Jewish leadership who, although they had the uh, scriptures, failed to recognize that he was the Messiah. However, in the context of what we're studying this week, it's um, the rich man had no compassion on the poor man. And then it's looking into the future and saying his reward will be what he's got now, this is the rich man, and punishment. Whereas the poor man, Lazarus, his reward will be what God desired that he should have had in the first place. Mm. He would have eternal life.
So the message is for us in this day and age that we need, if we're in a position where we can show compassion on someone else who needs it, that we should do it and not avoid our duty to our fellow man. Thank you, Len, Helen, very much. I think there's an interesting point in here that uh, Len has touched on. The, uh, the guy that was the poor man, his name was Lazarus. <laughs> it wasn't too much longer before Christ actually raised Lazarus <laughs> from the dead. Uh, I find a certain irony in this particular story because... But um, he didn't say, come down, Lazarus, No, he, he said, come out, yes. and therefore that yes. destroys the whole argument yes. that this is actually talking about what happens when a person dies. Yes. I think we should understand, as Len said at the start, this is definitely a parable. It can't be literal, as parables are usually there to illustrate a point that's being made more than anything else. Because it spoke about them being able to talk to each other and then immediately the comment was made, but the, you can't have contact between these two. So that's right. the distance was so great. So it really was a an illustration that was actually understood at the time yeah. because it was a story that came down through Greek mythology if I yes. remember rightly yes it was and uh, so it was it was just a story that Nothing was more. Um, illustrating a point and I think it's interesting that one of the important points of it was he wanted the, the brothers to get the message and so it's very important mm. if a person realises that they're going to be destroyed or their punishment is extreme they don't want others to have that as well mm -hmm. and uh, he should have thought about that a bit earlier I suspect Ellen can I just make a very brief comment on that Len's touched, touched on it very well uh, the point I see one of the points I see in this is, is this Christ is actually fore, forecasting he's actually prophesying that even though someone will rise from the dead and it was not only Lazarus it was also Christ himself they still didn't believe. No, now, the bottom line today, I believe, is this. We have the scriptures, the word of God. If you are unwilling to believe the word of God, any other type of sign or wonder is not going to convince you. Because if your understanding is based on signs and wonders and not on the word of God, you're on a very shifting foundation. And just to support that, at one stage, Jewish leadership said, show us a miracle and then we believe. Jesus said, "Well, you have the you have the sign of Jonah that in three days, three days and three nights, Jonah was in the belly of the fish, and he was Jesus was referring to himself that in those three days that he was buried and then would rise again. Well, it didn't seem to make any difference, although later on." After uh, some months later, there were uh, there was quite a large group of priests and Jewish leaders who did believe, but at that time not they would the not. <coughs> okay, just getting back to our study um, in Luke twelve thirteen to twenty one, it tells another incident yeah. mm. of a man that saved all his um, property and goods, and he said, "What will I do? I'll build, build bigger barns." Um, Harvey, you want to make a comment? Yes, I think that we have to understand that Jesus taught that the temptations of wealth, whether having it, keeping it or seeking it, can draw us away from his kingdom, away from others and towards self-centeredness and self-reliance. Jesus called us to seek his kingdom first 
and to share the blessings we receive with those around us, particularly those in need. Jesus didn't have any animosity towards rich people. He wasn't really against wealth, was he? No, he wasn't at all. After all, when you look down through history, people like Abraham that was mentioned in the story... Was extremely wealthy. He was a wealthy man. Job, Uh in fact, you go on, Solomon, there's many of them. You could say are very wealthy. But it's... Jesus knew that wealth is, for many people, a deterrent for them because it becomes almost their God, and that's a problem. He was really more against them stockpiling it, wasn't it, and enjoying themselves and showed a lack of generosity toward God and depriving the poor and the oppressed, wasn't it, of their basic needs? Yes, Len. All right, just to make a comment about that, it's orange season at the moment, and we have an orange tree, and the oranges are absolutely beautiful. My question is, when does an orange taste the best? Well, here's my answer. When you can share it with somebody else and they can enjoy it too. So when we are blessed with all these good things that God gives us, when we share them, that's when they are the best. That's a very good illustration. Helen, just quickly, the the comment here on Luke 13 or Luke 12 is actually particularly important. Mm-hmm. Because really, um, Christ is not saying anything wrong against people who are rich, as we've touched on. What he's saying is that he's, the, these two incidents point out the thinking processes of the rich. The thinking processes oh. of in the rich is, I've got enough, not what can I do to help others, what can I do to increase the wealth I've already got. So the problem seems to be not so much of being rich, it's how you use those riches uh-huh. and how if you have an overabundance, what can you do with them? In the case of this man, all he wanted to do was build bigger barns, put more That's food true. in it. Yes, um, I'd just like to add that uh, I think this, uh, the scripture of money, I think is, is always misunderstood. Uh, I think many people out there in the world say if you have money, there's something wrong with that, etc., etc. No, but what the scripture actually says is the love of money is the root of all evil. Is the root of all evil, not having it. That's true. You know, every human being, every human being has intrinsic value simply by virtue of being a human being. And the parable is not about what the rich man had it's about what the rich man didn't do mm, that's correct but we've only got a few minutes to wrap up we want to finish off on the least of these and so brenton i'm going to ask you quickly summarize uh, matthew 25 31 to 46 Helen, please, it will explain be quick. what the, jesus is telling us there are two groups of people mentioned here there are those who are on the left of uh, the christ and those on the right those on the right are commended because in the person of others they saw jesus Therefore, they fed the hungry, they visited the sick, those in prison, they clothed the the, uh, naked, they gave sustenance to the homeless, they found a place for them. The difference between them and the other group who are damned, we would say, Mm. because Christ said, depart from me into the fires of hell, Mm. prepared, note, prepared for the devil and his angels. They weren't prepared for you, but you're going to be in there anyway. Mm. Because you did not recognize me in the person of those around about you. So a very quick summary, and it is a very quick summary, is the difference between those on the right and those on the left is those on the right recognized in the person of those around about them, Christ. But it seems also that they were totally unaware. They are so used to doing good that they never thought anything of it. They never said, well... 
when did we ever see you hungry? Because the wicked say exactly the same thing. One group are focused and attuned to the needs of those around them. The other group are focused and attuned to their own needs. Thank you. You summarised that very, very well. And um, Lynn, I think you've got just one more statement that you want to share with us. Jesus' statement that when we serve others, we're doing it to him should transform all our relationships and attitudes. Imagine being able to invite Jesus for a meal or visit him in the hospital or prison. Jesus said that we do this when we offer that service to people in our community. What an incredible opportunity he offers us in this way. That's a great statement. Thank you for that. Helen, Lynn, what are we I... going to do if we leave here today and we find a situation in need? That's the important point. Well, I'd like to finish if off If we see with someone a... broken down on the side of the road or someone laying in the gutter, what are we going to do? Yes, I'd like to finish off with a quote from Mahatma <coughs> Gandhi, and he has been purposed to have said, compassion is a muscle that gets stronger with use. And I'd, I'd really like to say that to be effective servants of God, we must know him. We've got to spend time reading the Bible, listening to God, and ask God to show us the least of those around you. Make knowing God your priority. And when we have that relationship with Jesus, reaching out to those around us will come naturally to us. And uh, I just pray that God will find us working out diligently. Love just because. And that's how Jesus loved. Thank you. Heavenly Father, it's such a privilege to be here today to share your word with so many people out there. We pray, Heavenly Father, that not only will they hear your word, but they will act upon it and listen to it. We know, Heavenly Father, every day that we have is a precious gift, and there's no guarantee, Lord God, that we will be here tomorrow. So today is the important day. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit may act upon all these people's lives and their hearts, and they'd think very deeply of the things that we say to them over the air. Your words straight out of the Bible. We just pray for each and every one of them. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.